Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Brad Thor, number one New York Times bestselling author of 14 books, plus the forthcoming Code of Conduct, out July 7th. Brad, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's always my pleasure to be with you guys at the Blaze. Brad, you've done work in the federal government's red cell unit, and in reading through Code of Conduct, I was thinking to myself, how did your work in the red cell unit, and and feel free to explain what that is to our listeners, how did your work in that unit inform you, number one, and number two, how do you have all of this insight into all of the bad actors around the globe? Well, the analytic red cell unit was something, uh, actually one of the first things that was stood up at uh, the Department of Homeland Security after it was created in the wake of 9-11. And the idea behind the analytic red cell program was to repair one of the biggest failures that caused 9-11. And that is a failure, or that was, I should say, it was a failure of imagination. It was a, uh, you know, all the people in Washington, D.C. thinking a certain way and not thinking enough outside the box. Uh, So DHS put together the analytic red cell unit, and I think it's probably one of the most forward-thinking programs the federal government has ever done. Normally, you do not get compliments from me (laughs) on how the federal government does its job. But in this case, I think they did a great job because they said, let's bring in creative thinkers from outside D.C. to help us anticipate where the next terrorist attack might come from and what it might look like. So they brought people in like me, Michael Bay, the director of the Transformers movies, uh, a whole bunch of other folks, and put us to work to try to use our minds, our creativity, to protect the country from the next attack. And I tell people that the Red Cell Unit is the Las Vegas of government programs because what happens in the Red Cell Unit has to stay in the Red Cell Unit. I can't even talk about stuff I've developed there. Uh, There have been some attacks, one in particular that comes to mind, happened in another country, a terrorist attack. And the, the means by which this attack happened, it was exactly one of the things that I had put together for the Red Cell Unit. I said, if I had these resources and I was looking at these kinds of targets, this is how I would do it. And that attack happened over... Uh, one of the guys at the Red Cell Unit, uh, when the news broke, and he said, listen, I know why you're calling. He said, it's happened, but you still can't talk about it. You can't say that this was one of the things that we were looking at. So what the, what the government did, what the Red Cell Unit did by bringing me in is they said, we want you to use the same creativity you use for your thrillers, but use it for the safety of the country. So the same way I craft my books, I crafted plots and scenarios for them. So I, I, it was interesting because they put you together with, I, I say, people who, not who have been there, done that, and have the T-shirt to prove it, but people who have been there, done that, and have the spent shell casings to prove it. I mean, it was the full-on alphabet soup of agencies, and there's guys who you, it's like, this is Mr. Pink, this is Mr. Blue, <laughs> this is Mr. White, you don't even get a first name, and... Um, So some of what I learned was that I wasn't aggressive enough in some of my theories as to what tools and resources the enemy had. So I got that part of my toolbox, those particular items sharpened by working at the Red Cell program. But in general, what you're seeing in my books, my thrillers are being crafted the same way uh, I've crafted stuff for the Department of Homeland Security and for the Pentagon. 
And when you were in those conversations and then subsequently when you took the insights from your work in the analytical red cell unit, how did you then go out and really study and learn about our enemies? You know, I've read that you've been embedded with our forces overseas, and so I imagine you picked up some of it from there. But these diabolical enemies, you seem to have great insight into how their minds work and strategically how they see the world and think about attacking our weak points. So what has given you that insight? Well, I've always been a voracious consumer of news. That's one thing. Um, what's interesting is I just got off uh, the road. I was on the road for a week with uh, Marcus Luttrell. Uh, people know his story, Lone Survivor. Uh, Pete Scobell, another terrific Navy SEAL. Uh, Morgan Luttrell, who's Marcus's brother, uh, and, a, and a handful of other absolutely fantastic warriors. And I, I yet again realized these guys are also voracious consumers of news, too. So uh, the New York Times did an article about SEAL Team 6. And we were on an airplane with Wi-Fi and all their cell phones were going off. And it's like, hey, you got to look at this article. And I read it. Uh, and I was struck by... I wasn't a big fan of the article. I thought it was an attempt to take the Navy SEALs down, particularly SEAL Team 6. Uh, it wasn't very flattering, and I think that was the intent from the get-go. Was uh, I can't read the minds of the people who wrote it, but it was just it was not a nice article. But that's beside the point. I, I, they are big, voracious consumers of news. So am I. And when I was in college, uh, and I watched Soviet communism fall, and the Berlin Wall come down, and those sorts of things, uh, I was looking at who was going to be our next enemy. And one of the areas that I saw incredible potential danger in was in uh, the the Muslim nations in the Middle East. But I also realized that there was there were dangers beyond that. There were people who saw the United States as an impediment. Those people even include American citizens, some who wield a tremendous amount of power, whether it's through their wealth or their influence. And uh, it's amazing that the more I dug into things, the more I realized there are some things out there that are just totally conspiracy theories. And then there's some other things out there that I look at and go, wow, this really is picking up steam. It's not a conspiracy theory. And people need to pay attention to this because that's what's coming next. And Glenn Beck is the one, uh, my pal, my good pal Glenn, is the one who coined the term faction, where it's this coming together of facts and fiction. And that's what I do in my books. You don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. Now, my number one job is I'm an entertainer, and I want to give you an edge-of-your-seat, white-knuckle thrill ride. And if I've done that, I've done my job as an entertainer, everybody wins. But if you close my book smarter, if you've suddenly learned more about a particular situation or a place or the kind of uh, bad plot or bad actors I'm talking about, and you close the book and you're like, whoa, wow, I get it now. And I can actually talk to my friends at work or, or, or my buddies at the gym, whatever, and I know more about this. If you're smarter for having read one of my thrillers, then I think that's the icing on the cake. Then I've gone and given you more than just a great, fun beach read book. And this book in particular, Code of Conduct, deals with all sorts of live issues that America is facing today. You have environmental radicals, you have progressives that, hearkening back to the original progressive era, sort of have, in effect at the very least, eugenicist or eugenicist light views. There's a tension in your book between liberty and security, 
all sorts of issues that we're dealing with. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what are appetites for a code of conduct? All right. Well, it's very interesting. So you, you talk about environmentalists and it's, it's uh, I would actually refine that a little bit more and say it's not necessarily environmentalists, but uh, it, it's people that are extremely concerned with the environment. That's one on a long list of stuff. And, and I will explain where that little environmental component came from because uh, it came from something very creepy that I think a lot of, uh, of your listeners will, will uh, be aware of. But I was in Chicago recently, and I turned on the radio, and I heard Dennis Prager. And I, I think he's a brilliant guy. I've read a lot of his stuff, but I'm just not in the car when his radio show is on. So I don't listen to him the way I do, like, Glenn's show in the morning. So Dennis Prager was talking about the fact that people, particularly on the left, who are not really centered in kind of Judeo-Christian tradition, are more worshipers of the earth. Whereas you look at people who are steeped in Judeo-Christian tradition, whether you're a, a regular churchgoer, a casual churchgoer, or somebody who just admits to the existence of God, your focus is more in, my books are not religious. This is just what I learned from Dennis Prager. But if you are on that right side of things where you b at least believe in God, your focus is more on your fellow human beings. But on the left, if if you don't have this belief in God, you tend to worship the earth and you're more concerned with the environment and what happens to the environment than you do what happens to your fellow man. Witness California flushing trillions of gallons of water out into the ocean to protect a three-inch delta smelt. He said that's a perfect example of what happens. So the reason the little environmental tweak came in to the book and, and what you're referring to is... Uh, when this plot becomes known that a very, very bad global group has a list of about 10 things they want to achieve. And one of the things that's very high on the globalist agenda is uh, to whittle the Earth's population down. They believe we have too many people on the planet. And in fact, down in Georgia, there's something called the Georgia Guidestones, which are these huge pieces, huge slabs of granite with all of these weird inscriptions on them. And included is this uh, are these 10 goals that they want to achieve and one of those goals is to take the earth's entire population down to 500 million nobody knows who put who paid to have these guidestones raised nobody knows why they're there all they know is that they are there as a monument to this absolutely horrific one world globalist agenda you can go online right now anybody who's listening and and look it up on wikipedia these things exist somebody paid for them it is either the most elaborate and expensive hoax in the history of mankind, or this is really this kind of crowing, half-secret, half-public crowing of someone or someone's, plural, with a very terrible globalist agenda. Now, you look at guys like George Soros and all of these types of people, they have repeatedly said that, you know, the earth is overpopulated, that the earth would be better if there were less people on it. Well, something else that people with that kind of agenda say uh, is that the, the United Nations should be the one guiding force. It should be in charge of all these other nations. And a couple of years ago, I was doing research online and I came across an article about some white papers, some policy papers that have been smuggled out of a top secret meeting in the Alps by a secretive body from within the United Nations. And this group was worried that 
America continued to stand in the way of the United Nations becoming the one authority, the one global governing body of the world. Now, I've never been a black helicopter type guy. I've never thought much of the United Nations. But when I read interior policy papers that talked about how do we get around the United States, how do we subvert the national sovereignty of the United States, basically, how do we get rid of Washington, D.C., and make Americans turn to the UN and only the UN for how to live their lives, where they get their laws, all this kind of stuff. I was like, okay, if this is coming from inside the UN, I'm starting to think that maybe these guys are a bigger problem. And if nothing else, it makes for a heck of a drama and great bedrock for, again, a fun summer thriller. So that's, the, that's a little bit of the... Um, of the core of what my new novel, Code of Conduct, is all about. And of course, you combine those elements that you discussed with something like Agenda 21 from the UN, combined with a lot of news reports out there talking about how the Obama administration is going to try to continue to delegitimize or at least not fight against delegitimization of Israel at the UN, and plus the environmental elements layered into it. And of course, what it really comes back to in the end is more power for those who are the ones promulgating these rules and disastrous consequences for the world, as has happened everywhere this kind of system has been tried. And your book really gets at that. Well, thank you. And and that's exactly what it is. I mean, I was stunned. It it doesn't all come back to George Soros, but one of the things that I found when, when doing research for my new thriller was... I was stunned at how much money some Soros organizations are pumping into Israel to to produce propaganda to convince young Israeli citizens that their nation is evil. I mean, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. And I thought, this is stunning that you've got Americans pumping money in there to turn young people against their own country in Israel. And so I incorporated a little bit of that. And this all gets wrapped up in, uh, in something that a lot of people don't talk about. When you look around the world, most governments outside of the United States and Israel are some form of dictatorship, tyranny, or hardcore socialist democracy. Uh, you know, they call it democratic socialism. I call it socialist democracy because socialism is the most important part of that term. Socialism is socialism. But when you think about it, the two freest nations, as far as their system of government, uh, the United States and Israel, uh, and let's back Israel out for a second, just look at the U.S. Well, you've got hardcore progressives that have hard hijacked the Democrat Party in the United States. You've got a lot of kind of windsock Americans that go where the wind blows, the, the quote-unquote uh, uninformed uh, independence, because I don't understand the mindset of independence. And I don't mean uninformed independence as an insult. I'm really, as we have another, probably the most important election of our lifetime coming up, I'm trying to understand the mindset of political independence who can't look at what the Democrats are offering or the Republicans are offering as far as philosophy, and they can't make up their mind. I, I just don't see it as they're so close together, you can't pick A or B. It really is apples and oranges. But when you think about conservatives, uh, libertarians, people who are fighting for limited government, okay, you can have more freedom or more government. You can't have both because one succeeds at the expense of the other. So when you look at conservatives and libertarians who want limited government, want to see government uh, 
reduced, those are the only people who are standing up against big government, eventually socialism, and finally communism, global communism. It really is a small group of people. So those of us who are pro-limited government, we're it. If we stop fighting for limited government and we succumb to the forces of the left and what the Democrats want, that's it. It's big government. It is a slide into socialism, and it's global. That's it. It's gone. So we are really the last stand for freedom in the world. And when I stand back and I look at D.C. and what's happening there, that's why I get a couple of really, really fun, what I think are fun chapters where there are some, some exciting things happening in the book. But you're seeing it laid out against what I call Rome on the Potomac, D.C. having become not just the capital of Rome, but almost its own Roman Empire itself. The, the treasury is there, all these other things. And I like to insert uh, into my thrillers a little bit about how the government has weaponized itself against the, the people. I mean, we, we're, a, we're a people that have a government, not the other way around, but D.C. has forgotten that. So in my books, uh, the federal government itself becomes a player because it also has become an enemy of freedom. We don't just have to worry about the Chinese and the Russians and ISIS. We have to worry about the establishment culture in D.C. Well, and, and since you hit on the point of America being the last best hope on earth, not our government, but our people, preserving the idea of limited government and private property and individual liberty and all the rest of it, I guess a question would be, since you think about all of the different threats to our homeland, both domestic and international, what is the biggest threat to America today in your, your view? Code of Conduct deals with a pandemic and not to give much of it, too much of it away, but what, what do you think the biggest threat is to America today? Well, there's natural threats and then there's man-made threats. Uh, you know, we're, so I chose pandemic because I found some interesting things that uh, were kind of a different take on it. I like the idea of a terrorist attack that wasn't directed one place at one time, but everywhere at the same time. And a lot of my guys, because I've developed incredible contacts in the intelligence world, the special operations community, law enforcement, and I always, I always love to take my contacts out for dinner uh, when I'm in D.C. or elsewhere and say, all right, this year what's keeping you up at night? Since the last time I saw you, have things changed? What are you worried about? What are we not seeing? You know, let's forget for a second that 96% of the testing of uh, TSA checkpoints fails, you know, and, and bombs and weapons are getting on the airplane, getting through the screening process because of the failure of TSA. You know, what are your concerns? And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the folks will talk about natural stuff. We're so overdue for a pandemic. But there's also other things. I mean, I can't go into too much detail because I've been read into a lot of what Snowden uh, revealed to the Chinese and the Russians. But I am very, very frightened about the Chinese and the Russians. I personally, because of a lot of the threats that, that I've had, I'm concerned with, with ISIS. There are, you know, the FBI is tracking ISIS cells, individuals uh, who have, uh, not really cells, more individuals in in all 50 states, uh, the people who have reached out to ISIS folks in Syria, Iraq, and other places and have said, we want to come over and fight in the jihad, and they're being told, don't come to the Middle East. Stay home. Stay in Dallas. Stay in Phoenix. Uh, stay in Phoenix. Drive to Dallas and commit jihad locally and absolutely terrify people locally. So from a, from a state, I'm concerned, from a state standpoint, I'm concerned about China and Russia. Bunches, China and Russia. 
from a stateless actor. I'm very concerned with ISIS. What we saw in um, what we saw in Garland, Texas, I think we're going to see a lot more of. You know, I'm concerned. Uh, I've had threats, and it concerns me. And uh, you know, I'm up in my security uh, just so that when I go out on tour or when I go to a speaking event, you know, that there's there's not going to be something like happened at Pam Geller's thing in in Texas isn't going to happen at one of my events. I don't want that happened in any way. I mean, uh, you know, there's no specific threats uh, to my book tour, but it doesn't mean that we're not being careful. And I also know, uh, and I can't reveal details, but I happen to know uh, of one instance, thank God the family wasn't home, uh, that has not been reported in the media, where uh, where somebody, uh, a bad actor, Muslim terrorist, got to the United States and went and hit this particular person's house, uh, hoping to uh, kill the entire family. And thank goodness the guy was already on the FBI's radar and, and they were watching and they were able to, uh, uh, to stop it from happening. But what concerns me is, you know, is the FBI going to give me a heads up or am I going to have to hope they catch the guy first? Because if they give me an, a heads up, I may, uh, you know, they may be afraid that I'm going to do the guy before they can capture him and then they don't have a court case. You know, I think that's that's part of the part of the way this works. So I think we are in very dangerous times now, particularly if you are someone who is a believer in liberty and somebody I said this about Pam Geller. Pam Geller took so much stupid heat after her thing in Garland, Texas. You know, we always hear Islam needs to reform. It needs to reform. Well, it's only going to reform if Muslims start criticizing the weaknesses in bad parts of the religion. And if a free woman like Pam Geller in a free country cannot criticize Islam, how the heck do we expect moderate Muslims in totally Islamic countries to stand up and begin to affect change? Well, and part of the, you know, in Islam, obviously, there are slander and blasphemy laws, which is the justification for trying to muzzle someone like Pam Geller. But then you use the term Muslim terrorist before. Our own national security establishment would not call a terrorist a Muslim terrorist. They would call them a violent extremist, a nihilist, potentially. And, and let's not forget that, quote-unquote, right-wing Americans are explicitly called out as being potential violent extremists. So even worse than not calling a threat by its name, we're also having U.S. citizens classified in the same buckets as ISIS and all of the other jihadist Islamic supremacist groups out there. Absolutely. And when you and I were talking before about when I talk to my guys, what do they see as the biggest threat? We were kind of dovetailing on a discussion about the federal government being a threat. And I have this raised <laughs> not infrequently by my guys who are active military, retired military, active intelligence, retired intelligence. The Department, Ju the, the, the Department of Justice is out of its mind. Okay. It is so far left and so out of control, it's not even laughable, it's terrifying, okay? The idea that returning veterans or Tea Party people or someone who has a Gadsden flag in the back of their truck is somehow a potential violent right-wing extremist is ridiculous. A actually, no, it, it, that, that's too tame. It's terrifying. You know, Charlie Cook had a really good point uh, over at National Review, and I believe in this so, so much. Charlie talked about the fact that the government's, our government's knee-jerk reaction to Muslim terrorism is to reduce our civil liberties. You and I stand in super long lines at the airport to go through screening. You have the NSA sucking up all of our metadata and 
probably more than just the metadata. And so we, we see our civil liberties eroded. That's our government's knee-jerk reaction. That's their first impulse. Let's put the burden on Americans. Let's make it difficult for them. That's how we're going to handle dealing with Muslim terrorism and preventing terrorist attacks. You know, that to me should not be the first impulse. And I agree with what Charlie Cook said, which is, how about this? Okay, we've got tons of Muslim citizens in this country who have overstayed their visas. How about if we suspend all visas to all Muslim nations for 24 months and we say, hey, sorry, you can't come into the United States until we wrap up all of your, roll up all of your fellow co-religionists who have overstayed their visas, all right? We're not at war with the Irish. The terrorism is driven by Islamic ideology. So we're not letting anybody from countries with that ideology in here. Is that extreme? Heck yeah, it's extreme. But guess what the knock-on effect is? You've got a good, moderate Muslim person, and most Muslims are moderate and peaceful people that just want to get along with their neighbors and feed their families. But you get good, moderate Muslim people, and you inconvenience them where they can't come to the United States because they can't get to their businesses or their investments here or see relatives here or whatever, guess what? They're sitting at home in Jordan, they're sitting at home in Saudi Arabia, and they're ticked off. And good that they're ticked off. Because you know what they start doing then? They start looking at their nephew or their cousin or their sister-in-law or their brother-in-law who they know go to a radical mosque. And one day over chai or at dinner, they say, you know what, Jerko, it's because of you I have had my visa suspended to get into the United States, and I can't get in there for the next 24 months. It's because of you and the other radicals that go to that radical mosque. It's because of that radical preacher of yours. And you know what? That's it. I've had it. I don't want you in my house. I'm not doing business with you. We should be, a f we should be exerting every pressure we have as a nation to turn moderate Muslims against the radicals. We should have, you know, we have all these idiot uh, bureaucracies under Obama that have been created, like the Consumer Fraud Bureau and all this kind of stuff, or Consumer Protection Bureau. I don't even know what the new speak is for that one. But why don't we have a division of our government that is geared specifically for eroding and absolutely dismantling radical Islamic, it's actually not radical, it's fundamentalist is Islamic ideology. Uh, you know, uh, if if Mohammed came back, he would look at Osama bin Laden and find that Osama bin Laden was practicing Islam exactly the way he wanted it practiced. The people that we look at as the moderates who don't go out and chop people's heads off and things like this and wage uh, jihad are actually the ones who are perverting the religion. Bin Laden's actually preserving it. So why don't we have a government agency that its sole goal is to discredit and dishearten the enemy through attacking fundamentalist ideology in Islam. I think that would be a great use of taxpayer money. Well, and during the Cold War, and you probably are, are well aware of this, there was a document, NSC 68, that was developed under Truman, which talked about here are all the different ways that we are going to attack the communist ideology. And it went through, and it was not a thousand-page Obamacare document. It was a 40- or 50-page document that laid out that this war is not only tactical and military, but it's also ideological. But instead, what you get today is people on the left and the right attacking Pamela Geller as a provocateur. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And guess what? The First Amendment exists to protect speech you don't agree with. It actually is there. If, if all that was worthy of protection was speech everybody agreed with, we wouldn't need the First Amendment. 
Okay, so you don't have to agree with what Pamela Geller is doing, but my God, Pamela Geller is doing more to help reform Islam than any pansy on the left or right who's criticizing her. And I don't care who criticized her. I don't care who it is. You are weak and you're a pansy for not standing behind her. It, it makes no sense to me that you would not support someone who is trying to bring about reform in one of the most dangerous ideologies uh, since Nazism. Uh, and it's been, it, it actually predates Nazism, so I can't say it's, it's since Nazism. Uh, this idea that Pamela Geller somehow deserved what, what they got and she's making it worse for people. You know, I heard people say, well, why provoke all Muslims? She's not trying to provoke all Muslims. She's trying to provoke a discussion. And moderate Muslims should not be offended by the depiction of their prophet Muhammad. Uh, you know, they can say it's in their book, all this kind of stuff. Islam is the only major world religion uh, that has not had a reformation. Judaism has, Christianity has, Islam has not. And probably, in, in, Ben, if you end up doing a, a, a print story on this online, I would encourage you to please link to probably one of the best articles ever written about the West and how we are pandering to fundamentalist Islam, it was actually, I don't know that you do a lot of links to the Huffington Post, but it was on the Huffington Post, and it was written by Sam Harris, who's on Bill Maher a lot, and Sam's, a, Sam's an agnostic, and uh, Sam wrote a great article called Losing Our Spines to Save Our Necks, and he talks about the fact that we have allowed a protected space to be carved out in the public square where every other group is expected to debate rationally on the uh, playing field of ideas, except for Islam. We can go ahead and talk about Catholicism, Mormonism, Buddhism, Hinduism, but we can't critique and discuss the tenets of Islam. And that's because we are hamstringing ourselves. And Islam needs more attention, more criticism, not less. If we don't criticize Islam and put pressure on Islam, how do you expect reformers and, again, moderates, to, to have the, the wind at their backs, the wind in their sails, to help them do the work that needs to be done. Because we as non-Muslims can't affect any change. All we do, like I said, we get our civil liberties eroded. It's longer lines at TSA for those of us who can't reform Islam. We need to do everything we can to help reform it. And reforming Islam means we have to draw attention to all its failings. It's only when people are shown, hey, the house is full of termites, that maybe they're going to stop spending money on, uh, on cable and, uh, and tons of beer and start applying the money to fixing their own house. You were this past week out on the road with Rick Perry, and you mentioned before how 2016, and we obviously hear this every election, but it, it really is likely so in 2016, the most important election of our lifetime. That said, is there one particular issue that you think trumps all that you will use in evaluating who you support in 2016? And do you have a favorite candidate right now? Absolutely. Uh, well, Rick Perry is my guy. I went down and spent time with him in Texas because I was absolutely dumbfounded by how poorly he did in the debates last time. And I, he invited me down with my family to Texas, and I spent several days conducting my own debates with Governor Perry. He's done so much work. He is, he's not stupid, okay? That's probably the biggest takeaway. He is not a dumb man. He is very, very, very bright. And I love, I love Ted Cruz. I love Scott Walker. I mean, I love a lot of people. But Governor Perry was the chief executive of the 12th largest economy in the world. And if he can do for the U.S. just what he did for Texas, it is going to be amazing. 
So I don't want to hear what people say they're going to do. I want to see what they've done. And there is nobody in the Republican field uh, announced or pending uh, announcing uh, that can do or has done what Governor Perry has done. So I'm voting by what his resume is. And there's nobody that comes close to Governor Perry. He's a patriot. He served this nation well. He did a great job for Texas. And that's the man. He's the kind of president I write about my thrillers. How about that? When you read and love the president of my books, that president is Rick Perry. And that's the guy I want to see in the White House. We've been speaking with Brad Thorne. He's got a new book coming out on July 7th, Code of Conduct. I highly urge you to read it. It touches on so many live and vital issues that we're dealing with today, and it's highly entertaining, like all of Brad's books. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It's been my pleasure, Ben. Thank you, and thanks to all those uh, Blaze listeners out there. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.